0: Amen. Good morning, Crosspoint. So children, I already see you guys making your way out. Your teachers will be back at the back to uh, receive you. And thank you so incredibly much for joining us today on Mother's Day. We are so grateful for for each of you. Even this morning as we were setting up, I saw one mom, she was carrying one of those big signs that you see behind the connections table in one hand and the baby in the other, uh, helping to set up. And I was like, that is the picture of a mom on Mother's Day. But also one of the beautiful things with the gospel was also that I know that Mother's Day can be hard, either if your mother has passed away or a longing to have children, but the beauty of the Gospel is that motherhood is also more than just physically giving birth. There's also the opportunity of being a spiritual mother, the the way that so many have given of their time and energy, and we want to say thank you. Thank you for, for, for your service, for what you bring for your heart. In that, and at the end of the service today, we have a special thank you for all the ladies here this morning you 're going to there 's uh, flowers, the kids are going to be in the back to give you a, a note there 's homemade biscottis that have been made in a photo booth in the back where you can take a, a picture with your your family and so this is just our way of saying thank you this morning so if you will, turn with me to mark chapter nine as we continue walking with Jesus together uh, through Mark's gospel this morning. And, and as you turn there to Mark chapter 9, I, I want to ask this question of us this morning. Do you ever compare yourself with others? All right? Like, like, if we're honest, we can do this as parents, right? As, as moms and dads, Like, are our kids walking at the right age? Are they talking? Are they teething? Are they behaving the right? Like, is that my child in the back making that noise? Am I going to have to, like, go back there to take care of this? We compare ourselves to one another. How are they parenting? How am I parenting? How are they disciplining? How am I disciplining my children? Siblings do this with each other, right? Who's getting the better grades? Who's more athletic? Who's more musically inclined? Who's more artistic? And we compare ourselves against one another. And it doesn't change as we get older. We do it in the workplace. Who's making more money? Who has the better job? Who got the promotion? And the reality is we do it when we come to church as well. We, we look at one another and we can say, how do they not understand this theological principle yet? I'm more mature than they are. And then we see someone else and we're like, wow, they're much more mature than I am. I could never do that And on and on the comparisons grow. And I think if we're honest with one another, we would all say that yes, we've fallen into this. I've compared myself against others either thinking myself lesser or in pride thinking myself better than they are. It's as if it's it's hardwired into our nature because in many ways it is. And what we're going to see this morning is that the character of God, as demonstrated in Jesus, is going to confront this nature in ourselves. This nature that wants to compare ourselves, this nature that in pride would put ourselves above others. In the character of Christ is going to confront that, bring conviction, but then promise to also bring about transformation in us. How do we lay that down? How then do we walk as servants, willing to deny ourselves for the sake of others? And we're going to see that it's only because of Christ. So let's pray and then dive in. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity this morning to open your word lord to be humbled before your presence lord help our eyes to see you clearly help us to not compare ourselves to one another but to see ourselves in light of who you are lord that it would lead to both conviction that we would not minimize sin this morning But I pray that it would also build us up and help us to see the hope that we have in the gospel this morning as we move out into yet another week. And so, Lord, we surrender this time to you. And in Jesus' name, amen. So look with me in Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 30. We'll be looking at verse 30 through the end of the chapter and notice what it says it says they went on this is being the disciples in Jesus they went on from there last week uh, AD uh, preached on where Jesus was on the, the mount of transfiguration he was there with Peter James and John and then they came down from the mountain and there was this boy who was demon possessed and it, it caused him to be mute and then Jesus healed him so they went on from there they passed through Galilee And it says Jesus did not want anyone to know because Jesus was at this point having a private conversation with his disciples. He he wanted to be able to speak to them, not crowds, but to speak to them directly. And he was saying, The Son of Man, speaking of himself, is going to be delivered into the hands of man. They will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. This is Jesus clearly stating what's going to happen. Now I want us to remember where we're at in the broader understanding of Mark's gospel. Right? Cuz if you remember it, there's three sections to Mark's gospel. In chapters 1 through the midpoint of chapter 8, it's really answering the question who is Jesus? And it's going to say that. He is the Messiah. He has authority over the heavens and the earth. Then halfway through chapter 8, through chapter 10, it's answering the question, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? what does it mean? And in this section, there's three movements. Three times when Jesus is going to predict that he is going to be handed over to the religious leaders, he will be beaten, crucified, die, and will rise again on the third day. Three times he will tell the disciples clearly this is what's going to happen. And each time the disciples are going to fail miserably. And then Jesus is going to speak. He's going to teach them. This is the second of those three cycles in the middle. This is, again, Jesus predicting what's going to happen. But I want you to look at the disciples' response in verse 32. But they did not understand the same. They didn't understand what he meant by this, but notice how it continues. And they were afraid to ask him. There was this fearful silence that the disciples had. Like, why do you think the disciples were afraid to clarify what Jesus meant? They didn't understand, but fear kept them from saying, hey, help me understand, I don't get what you're saying here. What do you mean by this? This isn't what I expect. But fear kept them silent. Because the disciples, they thought that the Messiah was going to be king, right? He was going to rule, he was going to reign. This meant an earthly kingdom, this meant overthrowing the Roman Empire, but more than that. It meant a place of power and privilege for the disciples. This is what we're going to see them arguing about, right? They thought, oh, he's going to be the new leader. This is going to be the new administration, and they have a front row seat. That They're going to have a place in this new administration. They're going to be part of, of this new king's cabinet to rule over Israel. This is going to mean something for them. Right? This isn't fitting their, their context. You're going to die and be handed over? No, no, no. See, you're going to be victorious, and we're going to have a place in that. This is what they assumed it meant, and they were too afraid to clarify. Jesus says, I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be handed over to the leaders. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be killed. But this doesn't fit in any way with what the disciples are thinking. They could not fathom that Jesus would not defeat the Romans. Where in reality, Jesus wasn't going to just defeat the Romans. He was going to defeat every earthly and heavenly kingdom there was. This is why Christ came, but they couldn't see that. They preferred the ignorance of their own hopes and expectations. They preferred the the, the own confusion. Their own plans for, for power and privilege. They preferred the narrative that played out in their own mind of how things were going to go, rather than actually asking Jesus what he meant. They were afraid to ask him. Now think about this for a moment for ourselves. I think this leads us to to, to really the first application this morning to ask ourselves, what fears are keeping you silent before God? What fears are keeping you silent before God? And here's what I mean. I've heard people say to me, I don't want to ask if Jesus wants me to go into ministry or if I should go overseas, because what if he says yes? So let me just remain silent. Let me just keep going in my own plans, ask God to bless them, because I'm kind of too afraid to ask what he wants. Uh. Are you too afraid to ask what God wants in your life, in your profession, in where you go to school, in how many kids you have, in, in the person that you should date or marry? Are, are are you walking in this fearful silence because if God speaks, then you're going to have to listen and surrender. So let me not just ask. I would rather live in my own ignorance. The reality is I think in Many of our hearts, we can allow fear to keep us silent before God. When think about what God spoke from heaven when Peter, James, and John saw Jesus transfigured on the mountain, what, what did He say? Listen to Him. Listen to Him. But they didn't understand. And they were too afraid to ask because of what it might mean. What if his plans aren't my plans? What if his purposes aren't what my expectations are? Will we surrender or walk in rebellion? And then they came to Capernaum in verse 33. And when he was in the house, Jesus asked the disciples, what were you discussing on the way? Now, let's be clear. Jesus knows what they were discussing, right? Right. This question isn't so that Jesus is like, oh, really? Like, I'm, I'm curious. It was to expose the hearts of the disciples. What were you discussing on the way? But once again, the disciples kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Once again... The disciples are silent, silent. but this time it, it's not this fearful silent. It doesn't say because they were afraid, but there seems like there's this conviction. They know that what they were discussing was wrong. And Jesus now brings that out into the light and says, okay, tell me, like, what were you guys talking about? We would rather not say. They would rather hide. But Jesus knew what they were talking about. They were comparing themselves with one another. They were saying who among them was the greatest. We don't know exactly how this argument went, but looking at the events that proceeded, it's not too hard to infer what this might have sounded like right the disciples are walking and you can imagine Peter James and John saying we saw Jesus transfigured we saw him with with Moses and Elijah as a voice spoke from heaven saying Listen to him Jesus didn't take you guys you want to talk about who's the greatest it's got to be one of the three of us because there may be 12 of us but he only took us three I can imagine then how the disciples might have responded to Peter. Yeah, but Jesus told you to get behind him said that you were being following more in the thoughts of Satan than of God. Peter, once again, sticking his foot in the mouth. Yeah, well, you guys couldn't even heal that mute boy. You had to wait for us to come down and then Jesus healed him. You think you're going to be the greatest? You can imagine what's happening here. The disciples arguing among themselves, using God's grace as a means of pride against the others. And on and on it went as they walked, comparing themselves to one another, trying to figure out who was going to be better than the next. No doubt meaning who's going to have the better position when Jesus is enthroned as king. Who's going to sit on his right? Who's going to sit on his left? They were concerned about their position. And here's where we see Jesus then speak. If you want to be first, be a servant to all. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. Not just a servant to some. Not just a good leader has a servant heart, a servant to everyone, to everybody, from the the, the greatest among you to those who you would consider the least. And here, here Jesus takes a child. The the disciples are there, and, and he takes a child who's in their midst. Now, remember where they are. They're in a home, Right? Like sometimes it, my imagination is what I remember of the flannel graph is Jesus sitting under a tree and there's crowds all around and Jesus takes one of the chi- children on his lap. But this isn't the context here. The context here is that they're in a home. Now, we know that Capernaum is where Peter is from, Peter's mother-in-law. So Peter's wife also is from Capernaum. Jesus is entering into a private residence. He's in the home. It's possible that he is in one of the homes of the disciples, if not Peter himself. The children who were there were no doubt one of the children of the disciples. And Jesus picks up the child. And notice what he says. And he took the child and put him in the midst and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives... One such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Whoever receives a child like this receives me. There's this play on words that's happening that pastor and scholar Kent Hughes points out that in the Aramaic, which Jesus would have been spoken, child and servant are actually the same word. Kent Hughes goes on to say that thus Jesus was saying that the disciples must receive his children, other servants and disciples, with open arms and love with which he was holding that child. Not only should the the disciples not be dividing among themselves, the disciples shouldn't see even people who are not part of the twelve. They should see them equally. Like, who do you consider least? See, in the first century, children weren't considered, like we see children as uh, a a blessing and to be honored and cherished. But in many parts in the first century, it was saying children are not yet adults. They're adults. They're people in waiting. And Jesus is saying, No, there is value. Who's least in, in, in your society? Who's least in your mindset? That's the person you're to serve. That's the person you're called to be a servant to. And you guys are arguing about who's better. You're looking at yourself, uh, who's better between you? And I'm saying, Who's even beneath that? Serve them. Be a servant to all. And we can see this starting to play in John's mindset. Because see, the disciples are listening to this and they're like, wait, wait a minute. So not only are we not supposed to be arguing amongst ourselves, but you're even saying people who were not part of this 12 were to be a servant to? And this then raises a question in John's mind, both kind of a question and a conviction. Because look at what he says in verse 38. John then said to him, teacher, we saw someone who was casting out demons in your name, but we tried to stop him because he's not following us. He's not with us. He's not one of the the 12. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon after to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Can you see the question that that's being raised in John's mind? Jesus just told them, look, you need to be a servant to all, to even the least Now, John's thinking back and he's like, well, yeah, I'm thinking about someone who's the least, this guy who was healing in Jesus' name, but he's not one of us. You can see the jealousy that also comes up. Not only is there comparison, is there pride, but there's this jealousy. Who's this guy? He's not one of the 12. Space is limited for this new administration, right? The competitions between us 12. Who's this guy coming in? And it also seems like he was being successful. He was truly following Jesus and he was casting out demons. Now, Some of those disciples just tried and failed to cast out demons. Do you see what's happening in the heart? Don't do ministry. You can't do that. You're not one of us. Don't speak in Jesus' name. Don't heal. That's us. This is our job. This is our responsibility. We are the ones who are going to have a position when the Messiah is enthroned. Stop it. But... Chuck Swindoll says how jealousy is no different for us today, isn't it? How jealousy can seep even into the church. Chuck Swindoll says that it's a curious fact that jealousy is a tension often found among professionals, among the gifted and the highly competent You know, doctors and singers and artists and lawyers and businessmen and women, authors and entertainers, preachers, educators, politicians, and all public figures. Strange, isn't it? That such capable folk find it nearly impossible to applaud others in their own field who excel a shade or two more than they Jealousy's fangs may be hidden, but take care when the creature coils, no matter how cultured and dignified it may appear. Jealousy can creep into our hearts as we compare ourselves to one another. And Jesus is like, lay it down. Be a servant to all. And so if we pause for a moment and and ask ourselves to examine our our own hearts, how is pride and jealousy preventing you from serving others? How is pride and jealousy preventing you from serving others? And, And this can take on many forms, right? It can be hard to initially come up to mind, like, I don't know, is pride, is there jealousy? Am I not really willing to serve others? Let me ask you this. Who has God placed in your life that needs help right now? In your immediate sphere, who has God placed in your life that needs help right now? And why is there reluctance in your heart to actually serve them? What excuses are you making? What pride? Do do you see yourself as better? Like, maybe they, they brought the problem on theirself. May, maybe we make excuses for why they deserve this. Maybe we make excuses for why we shouldn't have the time because they didn't help us when I had a need, so why should I help them? Who has God placed in your life that is needing help, but there's something in your heart of pride and of jealousy that's causing you to, to say, no, I'm not going to be a servant to all. I'm going to be a servant to me. This is what Jesus was calling out in his disciples, to be a servant to all. You want to be first, then you have to be last. You have to be a servant to all. This is what Jesus was demonstrating in laying down his own life. Jesus is telling them that he is going to sacrifice his life. And meanwhile, the disciples are like, look at me, I'm better than you. And they're just not getting it. And then it continues in verse 42. There's this strong, strong warning. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. What is this talking about? A young child, yes, causing a young child, but also a new believer, a young believer, a disciple who's not part of the original 12. How is the church going to progress forward if the 12 disciples say, it's only us 12, nobody else can do anything. It's all about us. The church would have died long ago. Jesus was transforming their hearts, their minds to lay their lives down. It's a vivid illustration and one that has a historical significance because at the time when the disciples were young, there was a, a rebellion, this insurgence in Galilee where the Roman Empire did just this, tied ropes around the people's necks and with the stone and threw them into the sea. Seen the bodies beneath the water go to and fro with the current. This would have been something that they would have known about, that they would have seen. And, and, and there's a severity that we see here. We see the hideous nature of our sin, right? Of, of comparison, of pride, of jealousy. It's saying, look, when, when we hold these things in our hearts toward others, We are sinning. We are hurting those who are younger in the faith. Don't minimize sin. This isn't just something to joke about, to say, oh yeah, we all have the same problem. And then we continue in our comparison and our jealousy and our pride. This should cause a brokenness in us. Look at the severity of our sin. Look at what it does. Look at what it harms. There should be repentance. John Owens, in his book, The Mortification of Sin, says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. What we're going to see Jesus continue to talk on is this aspect of there is a severity to sin, don't minimize it. Don't cultivate this comparison, this pride, this jealousy in your heart. You need to be relentlessly denying yourself and walking in the Spirit. Attack sin. Fight against it because there's something better. And we see Him. Why then Jesus goes on in verse 43 to say, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. For it is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two hands and go to hell. To, to the unquenchable fire. And if your, foot, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell. Do you see how Jesus is saying, look, don't just think, oh, this is a little sin. Isn't it funny? No. He's saying, let's fight it. Attack it. Don't cultivate it. Cut it out. Now, Jesus is not talking about a physical mutilation. He's not talking about actually physically cutting off hands and feet and gouging out eyes. This happened with some of the church fathers. Origen of Alexandria emasculated himself to prevent sensual desires. In the council of Nicaea... They were like, no, (laughs) this is not saying a physical mutilation, because let's be honest, with one hand, I can still sin. With one foot hopping around, I'll still find myself in all sorts of trouble. With one eye, even without eyes and feet and hands, my heart would still lead me to sin. There is something deeper. But what Jesus is talking about is there does need to be this mortification of sin, this resistance, this fighting against sin in our life that we don't cultivate it. What it's saying is if your hand causes you to sin, if there is something that you're doing, if there's some activity that you're participating in, and it doesn't even mean it's a bad activity. Like, let's just say, if it's a sinful activity, stop. Stop. Right, like That's just clear. But sometimes there's also good activities that we can be part of. But because of our sinful hearts, it can still cause temptation in us. And it's saying there should be a self-denial that says cut it out. Cut it out of our life. It's better to live with self-denial so that we can walk in purity than to walk in sin. If, if your foot causes you to sin, if there's some place that you're going Again, I'm not just saying a sinful place. If it's a sinful place, again, cut that out. But sometimes there's also good things that we can give ourselves to. Good things that we can walk in. Good places that we can go. But in reality, it's causing our heart to sin. It's leading us into temptation. And it's saying it's better to cut that out. To deny ourselves those things so that we can walk and the purity that God desires. The same thing with our eyes, the things we look at. Sometimes those can be good things. Are there things in your life, good things even, but you find it causes your heart to wonder. You find yourself that it's leading you into pride, thinking yourself better, leading yourself to comparison, leading yourself to jealousy. Do you just be like, oh, that's the way we all are. Or is there's this sense of no, my sin impacts others, and I will not minimize sin. This is what we are being called into. As Christians, we war against two appetites. Like as a Christian, you are a new creation. Right? You have a new heart within you. You have new affections for God that you did not have before you trusted in Jesus. You, you have a new desire to walk in surrender to God because the Holy Spirit is alive within you. You have this desire. You also have this pattern in your flesh, this pattern of how you once lived that still tempts you this desire for the things that God hates. Selfish patterns, prideful patterns, jealous patterns toward others, including your brothers and sisters in the faith. And I think it's worth us asking, how am I feeding my spirit and starving my flesh? Here's what I mean by that. Jesus is calling servants, his disciples, to self-denial, to say no to certain things as we walk in his ways. What are those appetites of the flesh that we need to walk away from, to, to starve our flesh of? What does it mean then to renew our minds, to feed our spirits? Imagine you have two dogs, right? In one bowl of food. You can only feed one of them. Only one of them you can feed, but choose are you going to feed dog number one or dog number two? Now, here's the thing to keep in mind dog number one is dead, dog number two is alive which one are you going to feed? Hopefully this is kind of a ridiculous question, right? You're going to say, well, I'm going to feed dog number two because that's the one that's alive. So it is with the believer. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. The flesh... Within us, those patterns have been crucified with Christ. They have been put to death. So why would we feed the patterns of our flesh? Why would we give ourselves over to, to things that reinforce something that has been crucified with Christ? It's ridiculous. Let's feed what, what's alive, what, what Christ has, has built within us, within a new heart. Feed the Spirit. This is what we're being invited into. And, and when you, we think of it that way... What are we really denying ourselves? Heartache? Sin? Bondage? The sacrifice that we live in, that we're being called to as believers, that's made possible because of Jesus. And the scripture acknowledges that this is hard. Look at this statement in verse 49. For everyone will be salted with fire. This is an interesting phrase to me. Salted with fire. Salt was added to sacrifices in the Old Testament. Whenever there was a sacrifice before God, salt would be added. Salt was seen as purifying and preserving. Fire often synonymous with suffering. Suffering that at times there are things that we will cut out of our life that as believers, we will intentionally walk through suffering for the sake of something greater. There are things that we will intentionally deny ourselves because of Christ, because we take hold of a greater treasure, a greater promise. There are stories that I imagine each of us could share stories that you have of how you have been salted with fire. You have walked through the suffering. You have tasted of the sweetness of who Christ is in the midst of that hardship. This is the encouragement then that we have for for one another. This is why the Apostle Paul could say in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering, it produces something in us. It doesn't just take away, it gives us something. It produces endurance. Endurance then produces character, and character produces hope. See, when we are willing, as a servant of the king, to walk in self denial, it's not a loss it's what we gain. This is what, what Christ is demonstrating for us and what he said in the very beginning, that he would be handed over to men, that he would be killed, and on the third day he would rise again. And this is why we do not need to have this fearful silence before God. This is why we can come to Him fully surrendered, because Christ laid down His life. It is the ultimate demonstration of His love for us, that we can trust Him with every aspect of our lives, that we can say, Lord, I lay down my plans, my expectations, because I want to follow You. This is why we can lay down our pride and our jealousy, because Christ was handed over to men he was killed and he rose again on the third day in each of us what righteousness do we have of our own what good thing have any of us done apart from christ that we can say i'm better than you you're better than me at the foot of the cross there is no difference at the foot of the cross we say we are all sinners before a holy god and then my only goodness is because of christ so can i say well i have a little bit more of jesus than you no! So, even in that, there's no difference that uh, we can serve one another. Not because one is better than the other. The gospel levels all of that. It allows us to live in surrender. It allows us to not remain in a fearful silence. It allows us to lay down our pride, to give up the comparisons, to give up the jealousy as we fix our eyes on Jesus together. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you have spoken so clearly. And yet, Lord, it's still hard, like the disciples, for us to understand. Sometimes we want to choose our own plans and expectations above yours. Lord, would you help us to lay aside our pride, to walk in humility. Lord, help us to not compare ourselves to one another in either condemnation or in just this unnecessary confidence in ourself, Lord. But with eyes fixed on you, would you help us to, to walk in surrender, to deny ourselves and to serve others? Would your character, as demonstrated in Christ, transform our nature, Lord? To deny ourselves and walk according to your Spirit. Lord, would you do that work in our life? Would you help us each and every day to lay our life down as a living sacrifice? For the sake of your name and your glory, and in Jesus' name, amen. (music)